Well, in 2003, the, the Barna Group, that's uh, an organization some of you might have heard of. Barna does these kind of studies and surveys on contemporary um, religious beliefs and attitudes towards religion. They did another poll, and they were asking people about their understanding of the afterlife in heaven. And I want to mention just a couple of figures of what they found. I don't think any of these will surprise you, um, but just a couple of things that they found. One, first, according to their poll, the majority of Americans at that time, again, 2003, believed in an afterlife of some kind. Second, almost the same amount, so the first one was 80%, almost the same amount of people agreed with the idea that every person has a soul that will live forever, forever either in the presence or in the absence of God. If we want to get more specific, they found 71% of Americans believe that heaven exists in some kind of form, and then 65% of Americans, they said, were confident that they would actually be going to heaven. Now, I know this poll is a little older. I mean, I know it's, it's 15 years old, and I know that a lot's happened in our culture in the last 15 years, but I want to suggest that it, at least it's my impression that these numbers haven't changed all that much in general in our, in our culture when we talk about, for example, the afterlife and, afterlife and heaven and hell and you think about the movies and the TV shows that we have, or, th or think about, for example, um, when you see a celebrity stand up to receive an award. You know, maybe it's an Oscar or a, a Grammy, or maybe you've seen a, a politician stand up after they've won an election and they go to give their acceptance speech. And what do they often say? You'll often hear someone say something like this, you know, um, I'm so sad that my mom or my dad can't be here today. But I know today that they are looking down on me, and I know that they're proud. Mom, I want to thank you. Now, when that happens, have you noticed, we don't hear people laugh at them out loud when they do that. Nobody scoffs at them. No one tends to roll their eyes. In fact, sometimes if you've heard people do that, people even break out in applause, and they say, how meaningful is that? Even in 2019, in a culture in, a culture in which we are people are increasingly suspicious about religion or maybe more likely religious institutions, heaven is still very much a part of our everyday conversation. Now, we're thinking a lot more about the afterlife and heaven today as we come to the last series, uh, the last Sunday in this series, I should say, we've been calling One Church, One Family. So if you're new with us, you should know that since August, we've been going to the Bible every week and we've been asking it this question, what does it mean for the church to be the church. What's different about a group of people, a group of Christians specifically coming, toge coming together that makes it different from any other group of people? And, and you might remember for the first number of weeks, we were, were reminded of the fact that we have a common heritage as the people of God. So there are certain things that have always been a part of our identity as God's people. And then we pivoted to the New Testament and we were looking at the Gospels, at the writings of the Apostles, and we were reminded of the fact that we have a common way of life. So that there's, there's a way of life and community that Jesus and the apostles are calling us to as a, a reconciled community, a spiritual family, a, a family of unity and purpose. Today, we're reminded of the fact as we look to Revelation 21 that we have a common future as the church. Did you notice how this passage in Revelation 21 talks about the church? John's given this vision of the end of all things. Okay, the last couple of chapters of Revelation being about the last judgment. And verse 1 says, as Margie read for us, that, that he sees this new heaven and new earth. 
And then in verse 2, the holy city, okay, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. This is clearly talking about the church. If you've read much of the scriptures, you know that the people of God are often described as the bride of Christ with Jesus, their groom. And while one of the most awesome things about the church is the fact of how, how diverse it is, how diverse it is ethnically, linguistically, socioeconomically, people from all around the world, all spans of history, varied circumstances, varied experiences, all of us are sharing a common destination. All of our lives are pointing towards this same place, the scripture says, and that is that it's going to end in a restored world where we will live together forever. We're going to live in eternity together. But what does eternity look like? There's a lot that we could draw out from this passage today. Okay, we could, we could do a whole series on just verses 1 through 8. Today, we're going to focus on one of the main thing that, things that distinguishes this vision of heaven from almost every other vision that we, we have in common conversation today. And it's not the fact that we're going to be living in a perfect place, in a redeemed world and in a redeemed creation, even though that's a great part of it. And it's not the fact, as verse 4 says, that we're going to be in a place where there's no pain or no sorrow or no mourning, even though that's also a big part of it. But the most important thing that distinguishes this world that we will be living in together is the fact that it is the place where God is present with his people. God is present with his people. I once heard a pastor ask, what would it be like for you? What, how would you experience it if you had passed and gone to heaven and you got there and heaven had everything that you could have dreamed of? Every, um, every joy every freedom from pain and suffering, the people that you love, okay, relatives that you miss. What if it had all these things and when you got there, God was not there? The Father was not there. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one that had permitted you to be there, he wasn't there. How would you experience that? That's a good question for all of us to wrestle with this morning. We're, we're going to be thinking more, again, about our future and eternity together this morning. And we're going to be focusing on this theme, the fact that as we enter into eternity and as we are with God, that, that one day we will be in his presence forever. And as we get into this passage specifically, remember, as, as we enter into uh, Revelation, in this specific uh, series of verses 1 through 8, uh, God's or Jesus' enemies have been destroyed, so Satan's been defeated once and for all. The dead have been raised. And then we get this vision of a world in which, a restored world, God is living with his people. So if you have your Bible, would you look with me right now at it? Verses 1 and 2, John's seen this redeemed world, and he's, he's seen the bride, the church. And now look with me at verse 3. Again, this is John speaking. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is God, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. When I was growing up, I was raised in the church. I went to church every week. I wouldn't have described myself as a Christian at the time. Looking back, I'd not put my faith in Jesus Christ. I was not following him. But I remember I thought about heaven a lot. You ever do that growing up? And I, I was thinking, what, you know, what would heaven be like? And, and as I understood it, this is what I imagined it being like. I thought it, it was a place of light, uh, of, of life, 
of peace. Remember, I was really little. I loved Burger King. I thought there was a lot of Burger King at the time when I was thinking about it. I loved chicken nuggets as a kid. Everything that I could enjoy in life was going to be there. It was going to be a happy place. Relationships, people that, again, I loved, maybe loved ones that I had missed. I remember thinking uh, maybe that a pet of mine that might have passed away I was going to be reunited with. You know when I thought about heaven, the one person that I thought very little about? You know who it was? It was God. God didn't play much of a role in, in my vision of heaven. In other words, I kind of thought, if I'm honest, and this is embarrassing to admit, again, being raised in the church, I kind of thought like heaven about heaven like it was a resort. I'm, I'm not kidding you. And I would show up, and God was essentially the gatekeeper of who's getting in and out. And I was going to show up, and he was going to be like someone that's standing behind the front desk. And he was going to let me know whether or not there was a reservation in my name. Now, I was a performance-oriented kid. I tried really hard to be good because I thought that's what God wanted me to do. And for those reasons, I was pretty confident that there was going to be a place for me. But interestingly, when I thought about what it was going to be like living there and enjoying this eternal, perfect existence, God didn't really play a role beyond that, beyond sitting at the front desk. Now, I'm not going to assume that my experience is the same as everybody else's, and I'm not going to project my, my experience onto others. But I do think it's safe to assume that there are some people in America that might imagine that God might have a role in heaven in terms of particularly assessing who's in and who's out, and does he give us a thumbs up or down at the beginning, but not really playing much of a role beyond that as we imagine it. But the language of, of verse three here paints a very different picture. One of the most important things that we can know about this new heaven and earth, if not the most important thing, is that God now dwells with his people. God's dwelling with his people. Look in this verse at the language of possession and presence. Okay. First, let's, let's look at the idea of presence. John hears the voice of of God himself. He says, behold, pay attention. The dwelling place of God is with man. And then later, just a couple words later, God himself will be with them. So presence and then notice possession. They will be his people and he will be with them as their God. This is is relational language. This is the language, isn't it, of relationship um, I had the honor of doing Thomas and Amanda's uh, wedding just a couple months ago. And as they were standing there, like a bride and groom of any, um, at any wedding, they're standing there and they're making commitments in order to be the other person's. I will take you to be mine and not only possession, but then they're going to be together. I will be with you. You know, it's not as if they said, hey, love you and, and um, see you in 50 years. Possession and presence. Relationship. That's what's being talked about here. Now here's, What's so important about verse 3, if you have it in front of you? If you're reading the Bible for the first time, particularly Revelation, which is a really intense book, it's what we might call apocalyptic literature, you might read that and say, okay, um, okay, God's going to be in heaven with his people. What's, what's the big deal? It doesn't seem like that big a deal. Here's, here's how it's a big deal. If that's your experience, it's kind of like if you were to walk in on a group of people watching a movie and you can tell that there's a really powerful scene going on at the end 
And you might look at that and you might think, oh, that's, that's kind of moving. And then one of your friends interrupts you and says, no, brother, listen, we've been watching this for two hours. This ending is incredible. You have to rewatch it with us. That's what we're going to do this afternoon. Okay. When you consider the role of the presence of God in the story of the scriptures, what's taking place here as God is, is, is promising that he will be with his people could not be more significant. So here's what we're going to do just for a second. We're going to take a quick journey. We're not even going to turn to these different passages, but we're going to do a quick sprint through the Bible, and we're going to remember some of the places in which God has talked about his presence from beginning to end, okay, from Genesis to Revelation. So let's do that now. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God makes Adam and Eve, and they are living in his presence, okay? Adam and Eve are in God's presence, and we know that among other reasons, not because it's only because it's obvious, but then when you get to verse uh, 8 of chapter 3, after they've eaten of the fruit that they shouldn't have had, it says specifically that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Okay, they experience shame, and they no longer feel fit to be in his presence. Again, because they ate of the fruit of the tree, knowledge of good and evil. And so what happens? By the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are banished from the presence of God. They are banished from the garden, and they can't enter into it. And from then on, from Genesis 4 to Revelation, okay, the story of the Bible in many ways becomes the story of God's pursuit of his people and being with his people. Not, not just redeeming the whole world, but redeeming his people and being with them. The story of, of relationship with God continues as we read on. Let's look at some more verses. Again, we're going to see this language of presence and possession. First, possession. Some of you might remember, I think we looked at this uh, several weeks ago towards the beginning of the series. Exodus 6-7 God's with Moses. He's talking to Moses about the fact that Moses is going to be leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And what does he say to Moses to tell them? I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Israel, I'm going to take you to be my people. I'm going to be your God. Or later on in Exodus 19, God's preparing to make a covenant with Israel, to make a covenant with his people. And, and what does he tell Moses to say? Say to the Israelites, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Or moving on in Exodus 25, after the covenant has been made, God again, um, he talks about making his people's possession and, and he talks about being with them. He says, this is the beginning of the tabernacle, and let them make me a sanctuary. Why? that I might dwell in their midst. And then the rest of that, um, those number of chapters is, is him giving the description of, of um, what the tabernacle should look like in his glory being with them. First Kings 6, God says to Solomon about the, the building, the temple in Jerusalem. He's, he's, he's telling him what he needs to do. He says in verse 12 that he's going to establish his word with Solomon. And then it gets to verse 13, and he says... And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. I'm going to dwell amongst you. I'm not going to forsake you. Now, if you've read on in the Old Testament, you know that uh, the glory fills the temple. Ultimately, in Ezekiel, the glory departs. It's, it's a horrific thing. The glory of God departs his people, and, and there's heartache, and there's brokenness, and there's a waiting 
and there's an anticipation. And then flash forward to the Gospels. Okay, flash forward to John chapter 1. And, and what does it say? Many of you have heard this talked about many times. John 1, 14, as, as Jesus, the Word is being described by John, what does it say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He, he dwelt among us. Many of you have heard it said. It's the same word as he, he tabernacled among us. He dwelt with his people. And then we know the promise of his dwelling in the form of the, in the Holy Spirit. Again, the person of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verse 16, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the form cannot receive, who, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, one of the reasons this is most significant is because there's a way in which God is now coming and he's dwelling with his people, not just in a building, but he's coming and he's living inside of us. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. It's an amazing thing. We were looking at it um, in the beginning of one of the sermons a couple weeks ago. But there's still a sense, this is our last verse, in John chapter 14, that there's going to be some sort of even greater experience of being in the presence of God. Because notice, later on in, in verse 16 John, John four, of John 14, he, uh, Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit's going to indwell them. But he still says this at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that I may be Sorry, that where I am, you may be also. So on one hand, the, the Spirit of God we know is coming in and it's, it's indwelling believers. Uh, he is living inside of us. And at the same time, there's this sense that there's going to be an even greater experience of intimacy in the presence of God. And so having looked at just those verses, we could look at more. But just having looked at those and thinking about this scene that we have, in, particularly in verses 1 through 4, do we see how this reference to God dwelling with his people in verse 3, this is not just the icing on the cake of the story that was thrown in to, to make it a happy ending. Okay? This is the, the permanent and the eternal fulfillment of everything that the Bible has been pointing towards. That, that God's going to be with his people. This is how the story began. began again, Genesis 1. God's there. His people are with him. Why? They had every right because he made them. And then again, in the very end, God is there with his people. He is present with them. They're in an unmediated relationship with him. Why? They have every reason to be in his presence. Because they're perfect? No. But they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's the story of the scriptures, this journey into a, a final and eternal presence of God. So as we step back again then and think about the way that we often vision and talk about heaven, can we see how this vision is, is different from so many of the ways that I knew at least I grew up thinking about and, and many of the ways that we talk about today as we think about God in the fact that it's all about God. It's all about God. God is, is not the, 
the gatekeeper to this event. He's the event. Okay, yes, he's a judge, but it's all about him. I'm, I'm so glad to see um, some of Mally's family here today. I was thinking, I was planning on sharing about my last couple of days with Mally, and, and some of you who were at the celebration of her life might remember my sharing this. Um, as she was about to pass, she, she knew she was about to step into the presence of God. And what did she say? This was a woman uh, losing a battle with cancer. And she did not say, Brian, I'm so glad I'm not going to be in, in any pain. Though she might have, I would imagine, felt that. You know what she said? She, she looked at us around her bed and she said, I just can't believe I'm about to be in the presence of God. I can't believe I'm about to be in God's presence. Heaven is about so much more than the absence of pain, but that's an amazing part of it. And it's so much more than being with the people that we love. Though, again, relationships are good, just like health is good. They're created goods. But it is, a pri- it is about the privilege of standing before the God of the universe in his presence and enjoying him. Standing with him face to face. If you've read chapter 22 of Revelation, you know later on in 22.4, it's going to talk about the servants of God being there, and they're going to be seeing him face to face. And somehow in, in God's economy, we're not going to evaporate when that happens. He is so glorious, but we're going to be able to stand in his presence. So again, God's not just the gatekeeper. He's not the person at the front desk. He is the main event. And and the moment that we take his presence out of the picture, we just don't end up with the heaven of the Bible. Because the only conception of the new heaven, the new earth in the scriptures has God in the center. That's where we're all headed. It's, It's our common destination as the church as the bride of Christ. This is, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the end of your story. This is the end of my story. And so in light of this, I just want to ask um, or make one conclusion and then just wrap up our series. Conclusion number one, and the only one this morning. Because eternity, according to this passage and according to the Bible, is God-centered, our present lives, friends, must be God-centered. If heaven's all about God, doesn't it only make sense for our present lives today to be only about God? And if, if it's true that we're going to spend all of eternity enjoying and worshiping God together, and if it's also true, this is really important, if it's also true that even though we're not in his presence now, we have these means Uh, We we have access to him, it says in the scriptures, to the Father. We have access to him through things like prayer, through through his word, um, worship, all this being purchased for us by our Savior, Christ. How weird would it be for us to say, you know, God, I know I'm going to enjoy communion with you for eternity. I know you're the only true source of hope that I'm going to get to enjoy forever. But for these years that I got left, for these years on earth, those things may be true, but I'm not going to look to you as the ultimate source of my joy and my hope. I'm going to look to my family. Okay? You, can be, you can be a part of my life. You're, you're not going to be the focus of my life. How weird does that sound? It's a strange thing to imagine. Imagine when, when Lauren and I got engaged 
if I, if I turned to Lauren and I said, Lauren, um, I know it's going to be seven months until we walk down the aisle together. I love you. I can't wait to spend the rest of our lives together. I, I just I couldn't imagine anything better than that. But for the next seven months, I'm going to make my life about my job. I'm going to focus on being a pastor. You're great. Um, can't wait. Looking forward to it. But right now, there's something a little bit more important, and I need to focus on being a pastor. Okay? I didn't do it. I didn't say that. Yeah, amen. I see some people going, amen. No, I'm not sleeping on the couch. Praise God. But how weird would that have been? But isn't that what we do subconsciously when we make and we preoccupy our lives with anything else? When, when, when God does not become the prism, of, the prism of our lives or the lens through which we view everything else, our relationships, our finances, the way that we spend our time. Um, and I don't mean this in a legalistic way. I'm talking about how we view things. How weird would it be to imagine that that is the lens that we will be seeing all of reality the rest of eternity, and if we were to put anything in that place, whether that be our job or our family or our looks or our status in, in the community or making a name for ourselves, any of that stuff, how weird would it be to say, God, let me just, just give me a while of these things and then I'm all yours. That'd be weird. Instead, listen to how the Apostle Paul writes in, in Colossians chapter 3. I think this is what he, his, I think these, this is what God's desire for us would be. 1 through 4, Colossians 3. If, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ our God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, he's your life, then you will also appear with him in glory. Think about those words and think about the way that Paul's connecting all of our motivations and our identity and our thoughts and all those things. Saying, if you've been raised with Christ, if you have put your faith in him, if you have hope in the resurrection as well, if you're trusting in him, Seek him above all things. That's just, the, that's just the natural response that we should have. Don't wait until you're face-to-face -face with him. Start now. Now, does that mean that any of us in here has to become a monk? No. Although, if you want to learn about that, ask Bishop William. He can tell you some really interesting stories about what that's like. What this, what this does mean is that regardless of what we do with our lives, whether, whether you're a, a, a priest or... Um, Serving God in any other way, no matter how we're serving him, we are meant for him to be the lens through which we are viewing everything because he is our life. He is everything. And so what I want to do now is I just want to wrap up this series. Um, I want to tell you a story, and then I just want to tell you a thought or two from that story. Um, I was very grateful for the opportunity to be away last Sunday. Um, Again, was uh, out of town with some friends and worshiping at a, another church up in Washington I've shared about before. Um, very grateful for the way the team continue everything here. Very thankful for Deacon Fred's preaching. I was there and I was visiting with a family that um, our son's middle name is after. Okay, he's named after this family. I lived with them at one point. Um, Lauren lived with them. And I shared with you about them a couple weeks ago when I said I got to know them through this church. And I asked them, 
because they're, they're very close to retirement or the husband's about to retire. I said, have you given any thought uh, to moving out of the area? And he said, you know, maybe um, if there are maybe grandkids in the picture down um, in Tennessee or in, down in Virginia, further away from here, but maybe not because be we would have to be leaving this church. And then I, they brought up the story to me of another man in his family that I know. He's also on the verge of retirement. Um, he's originally, his family's from South Carolina. And they shared how they had asked him, had you thought about going back to South Carolina where you're from? And you know what he said? In essence, what he said was, was the church moving to South Carolina? That was his response. These people were so shaped and defined by the common life that they had with other followers of Jesus for the last 30 years of their lives, watching their kids be raised in the faith by themselves, by others in their church community, watching them be baptized, married, and, and watching these young people develop lives focused on following Jesus at any cost. They were so moved by that, that but that at a time when most people, honestly, in Arlington, Virginia, would think about cashing out and going and, and, and building something further south where things are a lot less expensive and life could be a lot um, less hurried, they wanted, to, they wanted to dig in deeper. And why? Because they're church family. Now, just to conclude, am I saying that it's wrong to, to move away? Am I, am I saying that if any of you comes tomorrow and, and, and says, hey, by the way, I, I'm, I'm retiring and moving away, I'm not going to judge you. But what I am saying is that there is a way of doing life together as a community of people following Jesus that is so powerful and it is so impactful that when you have the opportunity to, to, to think, what am I going to do? Do I want to stay nearby? or I want to leave? One possibility is you would at least feel the pull of staying, okay? And not because the church, we talked about this, is a perfect place and not because of anything special about St. Peter's or anything special about the false church Anglican that I was just talking about, okay? But because of God and what God does as he gathers himself around his people. And so I'm going to finish with this. Um, again, we've seen our common heritage as the people of God. We've seen our common life together. And we've seen where, where all this is heading. Our, as we breathe right now, life one day is going to be more real than it is right now. And we're going to be in the presence of God together. And, and I, I just want to ask, as we think about our common life here at St. Peter's, I want to raise a question I raised a couple weeks ago, which is what sort of life or existence in the church do we want to have? Do we want to play church or do we want to be the church? Friends, I don't want to play church. If, if, if St. Peter's is just another place, if it's a place where I clock in in the morning and I clock out at night or in the afternoon, or if it's a place where, where you show up on a Sunday and you hear some nice things about the Bible and, and, and enjoy communion and worship with one another, and you go home and you're an unchanged person, and, and, and you're not in community with other people during the week, if it's just those things, and it's just a part of our life, like the Rotary Club, or the Country Club, or a running club, or any social group, friends, we should just shut down and go home. But God is holding out something for us in his word that is so much better, and I can't tell you, and this is not just a, this is not fake pep talk talk, this is Bible talk. 
I'm so excited about what God has been doing in this community before I came and what I believe he's going to continue to do. I'm looking forward to share, sharing more about that on, on Wednesday if you can join us for St. Peter's Supper. But friends, we have the potential to live transformed lives in community with one another, not because of anything special about us and not because of anything special about St. Peter's, but because we are being gathered around a God who is glorious and indescribable. And you can't be in relationship with God and come into proximity with him and dwell in his midst and not be changed. Do you want that? I want that. Let's press into that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your vision for the church. Thank you for us being freed people, rescued people, people who know you by faith, um, being a community that you've brought us into together as a spiritual family. And, and thank you for the place that we're heading together as we enjoy you. Lord, help us prepare for heaven now by savoring you every day, individually and in community with one another. Show us in weeks and months to come how you want us to do that together here at St. Peter's, Lord, that you would change us, that you would change the communities around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.